Tonight we begin a study of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We'll actually introduce this letter over uh, two weeks. I'm going to do some, some general introduction tonight, and then next week we're going to do almost a, a survey of the book of Ephesians so that we get some, a, a broad stroke, a bigger picture of what's going on in the book before we start tackling details of verse-by-verse presentation. So this introduction will, go, will take place over two weeks. The, 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 uh, the text or the context and the, the information in this introduction are critical to our understanding of the book, so I invite you to pay very, very close attention as we introduce this very important letter. The late Harold Honer began his commentary on Paul's letter to the Ephesians this way. He said, The letter to the Ephesians is one of the most influential documents in the Christian church. John Calvin counted Ephesians as his favorite book of Scripture and preached 48 sermons from this letter from May 1558 to March 1559. I've not determined precisely how many sermons that will take us to cover this material, but I think that number is probably in the neighborhood of how many it should take. And John Knox, for example, valued the study of Ephesians so much that in the last few days of his life, his, his last request was that Calvin's sermons on Ephesians be read to him on his deathbed. And his loving wife gave, uh, uh, lovingly complied to that request. The Catholic scholar Raymond Brown summed it all up very well, I think, shortly before he died, saying, Among the Pauline writings, only Romans can match Ephesians as a candidate for exercising the most influence on Christian thought and spirituality. Certainly, Ephesians and Romans reveal some of the deepest theology in all the scriptures. A careful study of this letter and and a commitment to apply to our lives what the letter teaches will go a long way toward moving us in the direction of spiritual maturity. Not just learning it, but learning it and applying the principles that we find in this great letter will go a long way toward moving us where we want to be, and that's in the direction of spiritual maturity. Before we go any further with any introductory comments on Ephesians tonight, I'd, I'd like to say that I, along with countless others, owe a great debt of gratitude to Dr. Harold Honer for his work that he did in Ephesians. Um, generations will benefit from his spirit-driven efforts in this area. I love Dr. Honer. I know he was a mentor of Will's. Uh, he is a, a beloved man who's with the Lord now. But I, there are many Honer stories that I may tell you as we go through this, this uh, study. But one I, I can't help but pause and tell you now. I was in the library at Dallas Seminary one time many years ago working on an exegetical paper in Ephesians. That's one of the things you do in one of the classes there. And there's a particular part of the paper that, that concerns exegetical problems. And you have to, they usually give you a list of them, at least they used to. I don't know how they do it now. But they you would give you a list of problems and you picked now, one of those or two of those problems, and you dealt with those in the paper. And I was sitting in the, the little stall there in the, in the library, just, just studying away and having a great time. And, and uh, I, I feel this hand on my shoulder, and it was Dr. Honer. And, and at the time, Dr. Honer was chairman of the New Testament department. He was chairman of the Ph.D. department. He's a scholar's scholar's scholar. I mean, he's, he just uh, he was uh, very, very well qualified. And, and he leaned over and said, hey, Bruce, what you doing? And I said, well, I'm working on my Ephesians paper. 
He said, well, what part of the Ephesians paper are you working on? I said, well, I'm working on the exegetical problem. And I remember what it was, but I'm not going to tell you right now. <laughs> but, uh, he, and so he says, well, what's the problem did you pick? And, then, and I told him what problem. He said, oh, where are you coming down on that? And I started waxing eloquent with him. I, just, I explained the whole thing to him and all the, the data this way and that way and every which way you could come up with and came down very dogmatically on, with, on a particular side, which I still to this day believe I would, I'm right about. But, but he, said, he, he was very calm about it. And he said, ah, that's, uh, you know, he's very understated. Yeah, that's great. That, that's great. And uh, he said, you're probably on the right track. But um, uh, have you considered? And then he rattled off. Not just books, but chapters in books, parts of chapters in books, and authors, and journal articles, and, and just every manner of things that I had completely just gone way over my head. And, he, and I said, uh, no, I haven't thought of those things, but I'll certainly look them up. And, and he just kind of gave me one of those little wry grins that he give, gave people sometimes and just kind of walked off. It was about the time he was walking away that I remembered that he was in the middle of a 20-year study on the book of Ephesians for his commentary. And, uh, but that little wry grin was like, you're not so smart after all, young man. You know, so, so anyway, I do owe a, a great deal of appreciation to Dr. Holner. Uh, he has written a, a commentary now that I think will be used by generations of people, maybe, maybe uh, several, it's hard to say. The big A author, the big A author of the book of Ephesians is, of course, the Holy Spirit. The human author, what we would call the little A author of the book of Ephesians, or the letter to the Ephesians more appropriately, is the Apostle Paul. Uh, that was the undisputed view of the church from the 1st through the 17th centuries. It was not until the 18th century, actually, that Pauline authorship was challenged. Uh, today... Many in the scholarly community deny that Paul wrote the letter based upon what they see as internal evidence within the letter. But on this issue, I firmly stand with the early church, and I affirm Pauline authorship. And they were much closer to the situation than we are today, by a lot. And not just that. The early church was very, very concerned with authenticity, authenticity of letters. They could spot a forgery very, very quickly. And so I, and they were very careful to root out these kind of things that were written maybe under someone else's name and they were pretending to be either Paul or Peter or someone. They were very careful about fraudulent letters, so I, I just can't see much to their, to modern scholarships. Many in modern scholarships work on that today. They haven't compa- presented any compelling evidence that would cause a reasonable doubt for the fact that the Apostle Paul was the human author of this letter. So from this point on in the study, I will teach from that perspective. I won't give that a whole lot more, uh, more time. Ephesians, as you may already know if you've read it, and I hope that you did this week, is divided in, into two parts, two broad sweeping parts. The first three chapters are essentially theology or doctrine, if you prefer. Essentially theology or doctrine, chapters 1 through 3. And then chapters 4 through 6 are essentially applicational in nature, taking the theology of the first three chapters and expounding upon the ethical nature of the Christian's responsibility and duty. So the first three chapters are heavy into theology. 
the last three chapters are heavy into the application of that theology. Now, that does not mean that we won't have any application in the first three chapters, or that we won't learn any theology in the last three chapters. But generally speaking, the book of Ephesians, like others of Paul's letters, are divided up into doctrinal sections and applicational sections. We've studied the book of Colossians before. That's that's four chapters in Colossians. The first two chapters are heavy into theology. The second two chapters are heavy into the application of that theology, just like the book of Ephesians. Most, not all, but most conservative New Testament scholars hold to the tradition that Paul wrote Ephesians along with the other prison epistles, Colossians and and Philemon and Philippians, during the first Roman imprisonment, somewhere between 60 and 62 A.D. For those of you that just finished the study of the book of Acts with us, that's also about the time we said the book of Acts was most likely written toward the end of that particular period. So most conservative New Testament scholars hold to the traditional view that Paul, the Apostle Paul, wrote Ephesians, along with Colossians, Philemon, and Philippians, the other prison epistles, during the first Roman imprisonment, 60 to 62 A.D. During this time, as we studied just two weeks ago at the end of the book of Acts, during this time, Paul was under house arrest in Rome. He lived there in his own rented quarters. He was guarded by probably one Roman guard at a time, but he was guarded all the time, but he had a certain amount of freedom. And he could receive visitors, he could interact with them, and actually he had, he had a lot of freedom to do what a person could do, at least given the circumstances that he found himself. He still was a prisoner, but he had a lot of freedom to receive visitors, and, and then he had a lot, of, a lot of freedom to write some things down. There are, I'm sure, the, the reasons that God sent Paul to Rome were, were multiple. However, it's difficult not to be able to see one of the reasons that he went to Rome was to have the time to write these great letters, Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon. So we thank the Lord very, very much for that. Now, this is not the same as the second Roman Roman imprisonment. We talk about the prison epistles. The prison epistles were written during the first Roman imprisonment. About six years after Paul is released from this imprisonment, he will be executed. There was a second imprisonment in Rome. That's where he wrote the last letter of his life, 2 Timothy, Paul's last words. We've studied that too. That's not this one. In the second Roman imprisonment, he was in chains in a dark dungeon uh, called the Mamertine Dungeon. Here he's under house arrest, and he had a certain amount of freedom. With regard to Ephesians and the city of Ephesus, Paul knew this city well. He knew its citizens well, having ministered to them for almost three years. It would be impossible for us to speculate, or to say with any kind of certainty, it's possible to speculate, but to say with any kind of certainty, it would be impossible to determine which of the churches that Paul visited or founded was his favorite. Certainly he has some kind things to say to the church at Philippi, doesn't he? Uh, Not a whole lot of kind things to say about the church at Corinth, although knowing the Apostle Paul, I'm sure he loved them deeply as well. Uh, He seemed to have a great affinity for the people at Rome. But if you look at this letter carefully, you'll see that he truly loved the people of Ephesus. And so if I had to guess, I'm going to guess Ephesus might have been his favorite church, although we certainly don't know, but we at least know this. He had a genuine and very deep affection for these folks. And yes, 
I do mean an emotional affection. We've studied this recently, but we need to review it now. And that is, that is Paul's interaction with the city. Because if we can understand his past interaction with the city, I think it will help us to understand what he writes in this letter a little bit more fully. We do need to understand that he knows these people. This is not like the letter that we studied to the Romans some years ago, where Paul had an extended introduction to that letter. Remember, chapter 1, verses 1 through 17 was a very long introduction, and we said the reason that that introduction is the longest of all of Paul's epistles is because he, he hadn't been there before. He might have known of some of the people, because the, the church at Rome was probably founded by Pauline converts, but he didn't know them personally, so he spends a great deal of time introducing himself and introducing the subject. It's not that way with this letter. So some, a lot of times people will compare Romans and Ephesians. He knows these people. And he already has a very deep affection for them. Now on the first missionary journey, Paul traveled around the region of Galatia. On the second missionary journey, though, at the end of it anyway, he arrives in Ephesus in the fall of A.D. 52. A.D. 52. And, and hopefully these numbers will make some sense to you. A.D. 52 is approximately 10 years before he'll write the letter to the Ephesians. So he first meets these people approximately 10 years before he writes this letter. On the first trip to Ephesus, Paul ministered in the synagogue there for just a short time. It could have been a week. It could have been as, as little as a week, maybe as much as a month, but probably somewhere in between there. On that first trip, he had taken... Uh, Priscilla and Aquila from Corinth over to Ephesus with him. And since Paul can only stay for a short time, when, it's come, when it came time for him to leave, he left Priscilla and Aquila there to minister to the needs of this new infant church while he had to go. Paul felt like he was led to go on to Jerusalem, so he leaves them there. This is recorded in Acts chapter 18, verses 18 through 21. We have recently studied that. Now, from that account, despite this short time that he was there, perhaps as little as a week, maybe as much as a month, you can tell from that short, short time he had already developed a bond with them, a spiritual bond, and I believe an emotional bond with them as well. They, they don't want him to leave. They, he'd only been there a short time, but they don't want him to leave. They, they can't get enough of what he's teaching them. And it wasn't just an academic exercise for them. I think they really wanted to know it so that they could really have their lives changed. But Paul has to leave, so he promises, if you'll recall, at the end of chapter 18, he's promising, i got to go, but Lord willing, I will come back. If, you, if you've never been in that situation, maybe it's, maybe it's hard to believe that a bond could be formulated in that particular length of time. But let me promise you, it can and this happened to me many times. The longest I ever stay at a place in my short-term missions has been two weeks. And there are other people in the room that have done short-term missions as well. You could amen this, although we, we won't take the time to do that just tonight. But, but I, my, I remember a trip to Kazakhstan in the year 2000, August of 2000. It was hot as it could be. The room was a little bit bigger than this, and we had just almost 100 pastors crammed in there, maybe more than that from five different Shtan countries. Every one of the Shtan countries except for Afghanistan was represented there. Uh, these were fantastic men. It was an honor to teach them the doctrine of soteriology. I taught it all day long uh, for the period of one week, Monday through Friday. Never forget, actually, one of the members of our congregation built the room 
that was that was used to house that, that this particular family gave the money. They also gave the money for a couple of air conditioners, like the one we have back there. And the guys didn't like the air conditioners. They, they preferred the heat. So about midway through the week, they asked if we could turn them off and just open the windows. And, of course, what do you do? You say, of course. Well, I, I, I never forget a couple of things that happened there that formed some of these bonds. One of the most interesting questions that I've ever been asked during one of the lunch sessions. The lunches were held outside under a kind of a shed, but it was a long primitive table, and everything was cooked outside. Uh, the, uh, one thing I'll never forget, there's, there's a spigot there where water came out. And I asked someone what the sign said on that spigot, and it said, do not drink this water. This water is contaminated. It was just for watering the ground or something. Well, I noticed the ladies were washing the dishes with that water. So I knew whatever I came home with, it was going to be more than just a gift or two from the, <laughs> from the people. But they were so kind and nice, and they loved you so much, they were giving you their best. And I'll never forget the last day of this conference, the last hour of the last day of the conference, two men from Kyrgyzstan came up. And, oh, I didn't tell you the question. The question that they asked was, one, one man was from Kyrgyzstan, another one was from Turkmenistan. They, they came up and asked a question through a translator. He said, when we go back, our countries are at war with each other. Each of us are in the military. I'm going to be shooting at him. He's going to be shooting at me. How should we handle that ethically? I said, that's a really, really good question. Jim, would you like to answer that? <laughs> this is your conference. Anyway, Jim Myers did a wonderful, wonderful job of answering that. But the very last day of the conference, two of the men from Kyrgyzstan, who I knew were dirt poor. These people didn't have hotels. We had an apartment that we were staying in for the month. I just shared it for the week. They didn't have that. They didn't have anything. They didn't, they didn't have anything. They were sleeping on the tables at the conference. That they, were, they would sit at the table during the day. They would sleep on the tables at night. And these two men came up and they had a gift for me. And they had tears in their eyes. And they gave me this little beanie, like a skull cap in Israel. But it was, it was a little bigger than that to kind of keep your head warm in the wintertime. And, and it was all I could do, you know, just, just to hold it together in front of it. Because I, I realized, and they gave me the biggest hug and they just didn't want to let go. And, you know, maybe promise to come back, which I haven't, I haven't been able to fulfill that uh, promise. Again, it was one of those Lord willing things. But that's happened to me over and over and over again. That's one of the most difficult things about short-term missions. Because if you really do love the people that you're ministering to, you can establish a bond very quickly with them. And you realize most of the time, when you see these men and women in these conferences overseas, most of the time you realize the next time you see them is going to be in heaven. And so you, you, just, you, you just typically, when you leave people, that's, that's what you're talking about. I may not see you again here on this earth, but God bless you, and I'll see you again in heaven. And it's just, a, it's just a very emotional feel. And that's how I believe the apostle felt toward these folks, even after a short time. Now, it's going to grow, and that's going to matter, by the way. As we study this letter, it's going to matter that Paul has developed an attachment to them. Because I'll, I'll go over it next week, but love is one of the major concepts that is taught in this letter. It shouldn't surprise us, because Paul says at the end of his life, the goal of all of his instruction is love. But that will be one of the issues. So he leaves in 52 A.D. after spending just a short time there. And remember, the first time he meets him, it'll be 10 years before he writes this letter. So you can kind of picture where you were 10 years ago. Maybe some of you met at that time. He does return about a year later on his third missionary journey in the fall of A.D. 53. And this time he remains in Ephesus for a period of approximately two and a half years 
departing in the spring of A.D. 56. So the sec- on the third missionary journey, some people don't even call that a, thir- a missionary journey because he does make a beeline for Ephesus, and he stays there for a long period of time. But this is when he really gets to know these people, and he ministers to them with all of his heart. But then he does have to leave in the spring of 56. One year later after that, in the spring of 57, he was unable to go to Ephesus uh, as he makes his that very fateful journey back to Jerusalem. He's unable to go to Ephesus, but he does stop in Miletus, nearby Miletus, and makes a very impassioned speech to the uh, Ephesian elders, to his close friends there. And that is recorded in Acts chapter 20, verses 16 through 38. In order for us to get the proper feel for this, I'd like you to open your Bibles there now. Acts chapter 20, verses 16 through 38. Understanding that we have studied this within the last few months. Some were here, some were not, and some will, will have forgotten what we've studied. But I'd like to, to review just briefly Paul's farewell address to the Ephesian elders before we go any further with our introduction. I want you to get a glimpse of the relationship. And this farewell speech will give you a glimpse of the relationship and the emotional attachment that Paul has with these people. Now, the reason I'm stressing this is this is the last time, as far as we know, this is the last time that he actually sees these people in the fall, or rather the spring of 57. But... If you recall, he, he sees these people, he goes to Jerusalem, he's arrested in Jerusalem. Remember, then he's in prison for a couple of years in Caesarea, then he finally makes his way back to Rome. So it's the next correspondence that he has with these people that we'll be studying for the next many weeks. The letter to the Ephesians will be the very next thing, the very next official correspondence between Paul and these folks. So in Acts chapter 20, verses 16 through 38... And from, I'm 17. And from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. Today, the site of ancient Ephesus is about four miles inland from the sea, inland from the Aegean Sea, on the western coast of what we now call Turkey. Uh, however, in Paul's day, Ephesus was a seaport in what was then called Asia Minor. On the, on the coast of Asia Minor, at the mouth of the Caister River. Now, the river, it's well known historically, not just, this is not a biblical concept, this is an historical concept, but the river was a source of problem for the Ephesians throughout the centuries, but especially in the time of the Apostle Paul, because this river kept depositing silt into their harbor. And finally, the harbor was not a place where large ships could dock. So, among other things, that's probably one of the reasons why when Paul is coming back to go to Jerusalem, remember, he's, he really wants to get there. That's probably why he doesn't meet them, meet the Ephesian elders in Ephesus, because that big ship couldn't dock there. He docks in Miletus, and then he asks them to come and to meet him. So, this is one of those places where we know from history, and we can, uh, that we know from history, we can... Uh, understand a text better because of it. And from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. Now, what I, we have done exposition on this before, so we're not going to, as a matter of fact, we took two weeks to do this, this speech. 
So I'm not going to revisit all the exposition so much. I'll hit some of the high points in the few minutes that we have left tonight. I'll hit some of the high points. But what I want you to keep watching for in this exposition is how much Paul loves them and how much he's devoted his life to them. He's devoting his life to the service of Jesus Christ. But these are the people that he's ministering to. How much he loves them and how much they appear to love him. I want you to see that. Now, there's other people that loved him as well. I'm not saying this is the only church that did. But this church had a very special emotional bond with this apostle. And when they had come to him, these are the elders of the church at Ephesus, or the church is. I'll mention that in a moment. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time. Serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly from house to house. We already see the passion. Did you see the word tears in there? We already see the passion that Paul has for his work, for his ministry, and first for his Lord, for his ministry, and then for the people that he's ministering to. For Paul, this wasn't some sort of detached, detached, emotionless, scholarly pursuit. It wasn't that way at all. It wasn't just an academic pursuit. This wasn't just Paul having a basket full of information and dumping it into the streets of Ephesus, and whoever wanted it could come scramble for it because he was already on to the next place. That's not what happened here. He loves these people. And again, remember, the next correspondence he'll have with them is the letter that we're going to study here, and that will come some five years, four to five years later. So he says, you yourselves know from the first day I set foot in Asia, which is modern-day Turkey, or he's speaking of Ephesus here, I believe, I was with you the whole time. Now, he wasn't with them the whole time physically, but he's with them the whole time with regard to his heart. His heart is there with them. And I understand that, too, because whenever I'm overseas, I always keep a track, especially if it's on a Sunday or a Wednesday night, it's just, it's just something that happens. I always keep a track of what time it is in Houston. I can't, I can't help myself. Now, sometimes if you're 12 hours away, then you're, it's the opposite end of the day. But, but almost always I'm in a position to when it's time for church to begin on Sunday morning, I'm thinking, okay, well, they're probably having their prayer meeting right about now. You know, stop and pray for that. Or they're, they're, fixing to do, they're doing the singing now. Or they're just about to take the offering. Or somebody, whoever's preaching, is just about to start the sermon. And then I'll kind of pray with you all during that time if I'm not teaching myself. Then I'll kind of look at my watch and say, oh, well, they're, they're just about finished. They're doing the setup now. You see, I'm, my heart is with you even if I'm somewhere else. And that's what the apostle is saying here. My heart was with you the whole time. Now, it wasn't that easy, though. Wherever Paul went, there were problems. And there were problems in Ephesus, too. They, were, they tried to get him there, just like they did. Not the believers, of course, but others did, just like everywhere else. So it was an emotional time for Paul. Paul was not a detached person. We kind of get that idea about him sometimes. And I don't know where we get the idea, because it's not biblical. That's not the biblical model of the Apostle Paul. Paul was not a Stoic. Uh, Stoicism is not a Christian virtue, by the way. That's a, that's a whole different philosophy. You know, sometimes we get the idea that if, if we're to be really great Christians, we cannot show any emotion whatsoever because what, what do we think? In our culture here today, at least from the male side, we think emotion is, is a sign of weakness. So we think, well, since Paul was a strong Christian, then he couldn't have been a Christian that showed any emotion at all. Well, that's debunked right here. Because he says he, he ministered with tears to them. He cared about them. 
He cared about them. Now, you've, you've done that too. You've ministered to people with tears. Perhaps it was at a, a bedside when someone was about to pass away, or maybe it was somebody telling you they're having difficulties with their marriage or whatever. But if you really care about that person, then yes, you're going to feel in some ways what they feel. And some of us don't like that. We don't want any part of that because it's, it's painful to feel someone else's pain just as though they were feeling it. I guess it's the difference between empathy and sympathy. Sympathy, I've been, I've been told it can be described as being on a cruise ship and seeing someone that is seasick throwing up overboard and feeling sorry for them. Empathy is going over and throwing up with them. Well, now that may not be accurate, but that's, that's what I've heard anyway. Well, I think Paul had empathy toward him, not just sympathy. When you, when you really love the people that you're ministering to, and they go through trials, there's a part of you that goes through it with them. And that's not just the pastor, it's you and your friends in church as well. There's a part of you that goes through it with them, and don't be afraid of that. It doesn't indicate a spiritual weakness. I know some, some have told me, some of you have told me, I just can't do that. I mean, I've, I've got enough problems of my own, I, I just would be an emotional wreck if I did. You can do it. The Holy Spirit will help you to do it. There's, if it's a biblical thing to do, and the Scriptures do tell us that we should laugh, laugh with those who laugh and weep with those who weep, and if you really care about somebody, you're not going to be detached when you're, when you're attempting to help them. Now, you have to handle that within the Spirit's own leading in your life, but, but this is Paul. He had compassion for them. He had empathy for them. And he says in verse 20, I did not shriek from declaring to you anything that was profitable in teaching you publicly from house to house. Now, I need to stop here because this, this will give us a hint as to one of the introductory issues in the letter to the Ephesians. Uh, they've already mentioned elders, plural, in verse 17. Now, it's very likely that there was more than one church in Ephesus. Ephesus was a large city for that time. Ephesus had somewhere between 200,000 and 250,000 inhabitants. And, and granted, with ancient history, one of the most difficult things to ascertain is are population figures. Because ancient historians seem to either grossly under, understate the figures or grossly overstate the figures. But a reasonable figure for the population of Ephesus at the time that Paul is visiting is about 200 to 250,000 people. To put that in perspective, Rome had about a million people at the time. Now, Ephesus, according to most historians of the day, was probably the third most important city of the ancient world behind Rome and Athens, Rome and Athens at, at this particular time. So it's probably the third most important. It's a large city, and so it's a city that's a bit spread out. So it, 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 when we talk about the letter to the Ephesian, or the letter to the Ephesian church, we shouldn't get the idea that there was just one house church in Ephesus. It was more likely there may have been one central meeting place where they tried to get together as much as they could, but most likely it was spread out among many house churches. Homes in that, in that day were not that big. Very few, very few homes would have had a room that would be this big that could house all the, uh, that many people. Now, there was, um, some school, there, was some, uh, there was a school there that we know that Paul met at during one of his missionary journeys, but, but it's most likely that there, were more than one, there was more than one location for the church or churches at Ephesus. Maybe what is being referred to here, not for sure, but maybe what's being referred to here when he talks about publicly and from house to house. He could have been from church to church or from small church to small church. In today's megachurch culture, 
it's difficult for us sometimes to put ourselves back into the first century. In the first century, there weren't churches outside of Jerusalem where, where even then they, they didn't all gather together except for on rare occasions. But you, you didn't have 5,000-member churches. In fact, you probably didn't have a whole lot of 200-member churches. This, the, the people that are in this room right here would have been a very, very large church for that particular uh, for that particular time. That should be good. So Paul says he went from house to house, but he didn't shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. And that's what his job was. In spite of the fact that people wanted to kill him, people wanted to beat him up, that people wanted to run him out of town, he loved the Lord so much, and he loved the Lord's people so much, that he was willing to do what it took. In verse 21, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, verses 22 through 25. And now, behold, bound in spirit. And when we studied this before, I said that probably should be a capital S there in your Bibles. Uh, there should be a, a marginal note in there. I think there is in most of your Bibles. And now, behold, bound in spirit or bound by means of the spirit. In other words, the spirit is leading him. The spirit has, has impressed upon him the fact that he should go to Jerusalem. Bound in spirit, I'm on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. Now, now stop for a minute. Let's don't read that so fast we don't get the emotional content there. These people loved Paul. These people knew that Paul had a special relationship with God. The Holy Spirit worked through him. And so they knew if he's saying that he's bound by the Holy Spirit, and that the Holy Spirit is the one telling him to go, but nevertheless, even though that's where he's supposed to go, tough things are in store for him. How do you think the people that he's talking to, these Ephesian leaders, are going to feel about that? Well, they're going to get a little bit upset about that because they love this guy. Wouldn't it have been much better if Paul could have said, hey, listen, the Holy Spirit has told me nothing's going to happen to me at all. I'm going to be perfectly safe. There's going to be a hedge of protection around me. I'm going to go. I'll be back in a year or so after I visited them because nothing's going to happen to me. They may want to arrest me, but they're not going to do it. No, he's telling them, I'm going to go and I'm going to get arrested. Well, if you love him, then you're going to get a little bit emotional about that. And you're not going to want him to go any more than if I told you somehow I knew for sure, I knew for sure when I go to Ukraine in December that I'm going to spend time in a Ukrainian jail. Now, that not might bother you, but it would actually it would bother me. <laughs> but I think at least a few of you would probably say, wow, I mean, I hate to see that happen. You know? <laughs> One of you would, anyway. At least my mother. <laughs> Cindy's not here tonight. I said that would have been two, but I'm not sure about that. She might, she might say, keep him for a while over there. No. So he's, he's on his way. He's telling them. He's very passionate with them, saying, I'm going to go, but there's going to be some tough things happen to me when I go. Verse 24, I don't consider my life of any account as dear to myself in order that I might finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. Not just to them, but to everybody else too. My life is devoted to you, Paul is saying, and to people like you. And now behold, I know that all of you, among whom I went about preaching the kingdom, will see my face no more. It's goodbye. What he's telling them is the same thing. Now, I've told people, not in the same sense, because I'm not in the position of being uh, arrested. I, I, I certainly, all joke aside, I hope. 
But what he's, what he's telling them is the same thing I've told Listen, most likely, next time we see each other is going to be in heaven. And that's an emotional moment, isn't it? They love him. He loves them. And so he's telling them, hey, this is the last time you're going to see this face. It's a very passionate moment. In verse 26 and 27, Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. And that's twice he said this, or something like this, in this short account. We, we understand he probably said much more than what's recorded here, but these are the high points. You know, it did seem like uh, Paul considered a great emphasis in his ministry was preaching the whole counsel of God. That's what he was to do. He wasn't like the Athenian philosophers who had to try to come up with their own philosophy, their own uh, uh, doctrinal uh, uniqueness. He was preaching God's word. Now, in verses 28 and uh, through 31, he's going to, because he loves these people, he's going to say, listen, be careful. Uh, be, 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 be so careful. I love you so much, but not everybody who comes in is going to love you like I love you. So he tells them to be on guard for yourselves and all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. And there were some exegetical difficulties there, but that's not our point tonight. We can go back. To that. Those, those tapes are available for you if you want to see the, the exposition of this passage. There's a lot of theology in that passage. But then in verse 29, I know that after my departure, savage wolves were coming among you, not sparing the flock. Not just wolves, not just coyotes, not just foxes, but savage wolves. Now, if we look at, if we look at the pastoral, he's an apostle, but the pastoral kind of duties he had before, he felt like his duty was to preach to them the whole counsel of God, to tell them the truth, no matter what the circumstances. So what do you think the wolves are going to do? They're going to do the opposite of that. They're not going to teach them the truth. They're going to lead them away from spiritual maturity, not toward it. And that's a big deal. We only have one life to live. We don't have any time to waste. And so Paul is, is warning them about this. Now, he's warning the leaders. These aren't all the members of the churches, but he's warning the leaders. And, among, and from among your own selves, men will rise, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after them. Even people within the church may end up being part of the problem. He knew them well. Maybe he even knew who they might be. He doesn't say so here. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day, for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one of you with tears. Here it is again. Paul was not a Stoic. I don't know where we got that idea. Now, he was not an emotional wreck. Please don't, please don't get that idea either. He, but Paul's emotions were appropriate to the circumstance. If the circumstance warrants laughter, and someone is weeping, I'm not talking about they're laughing so hard they're crying, I'm talking about if the circumstance warrants laughter, and somebody's over in the corner and they're weeping, we would think that the person that's weeping is not acting consistently with the data, with the stimulus. And in the same way, if a circumstance warrants weeping, and someone is laughing, we wouldn't think that that's quite normal either. If you're at, if you're at a funeral of a loved one, and I'm not talking about just you're joyful that they're in heaven with the Lord, but I'm talking about, you know, you've got, you've got people that are legitimately saddened by the, by the departure of their loved one, and you, you have somebody else over the corner laughing, you know, something's not right about that. That, ha- that happened to me once. I was at a funeral. A man, a friend of mine had been murdered out on the ship channel. A, a sniper had taken him out off of one of the boats. It, was, it, was, it had to do with some... Uh, and I don't mind saying it publicly. It had to do with some of the issues at the sh- on the ship channel with some of the unions and so forth. 
Well, I was at this, I was at the funeral because the man was my friend, and, and I was uh, solemn like everyone else was, and I looked over to the side, and there was a relative of the man, I won't say what his relationship was, and some of the other employees there, and they were laughing, and they were hooping and having a great time, until they saw me making eye contact with them, at which time they, they got all, all serious, like they started walking around. I never forgot that. So it didn't surprise me greatly when I found out a few weeks later that guess who one of the suspects was in his own brother's, I just said it, but brother's death. Because, see, that wasn't normal. It wasn't the normal series. So something's not right, you know, when that kind of thing happens. But but the situation here called for tears. So Paul wasn't ashamed not only to to shed the tears, uh, but Luke records it for all for all time. Now the final words, and, and I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. I didn't do this for the money. And I think he's testifying that. They can testify it too. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me. He, there was times in Ephesus he worked, his, he worked for his supper. And everything I showed you, that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than receive. And when we studied that, we realized, we, we saw that's not a quote from the Gospels, that's, that's oral tradition, we can't, that's, that particular quote's not found anywhere in the Gospels. Now verses 36 through 38, you see the passion. You see the, the, the emotion welling up both in Paul and in these folks. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And they began to weep aloud and embrace Paul and repeatedly kissed him, grieving especially over the words which he had spoken that we should see, that they should see his face no more. And they were accompanying him to the ship. So they walked him to the ship uh, so that he might go on to uh, Jerusalem. Passion, compassion, empathy, and love. There was a bond between the people, the elders in Ephesus, the people of Ephesus, the Christian in Ephesus, and the apostle who will write this letter, the letter to the Ephesians that we, that we are beginning our study of now. Love. Barclay, speaking about this particular scene in the apostle Paul's life, says this, and I'll close with this tonight. Through all this scene, there runs one dominant feeling, and that feeling of affection of an affection and love as deep as the heart itself that is the feeling that should be in any church when love dies in any church the work of Christ cannot do other than wither or fade the reason i close with that is when we reconvene next week and we take a bit of a survey through these six chapters of the letter to the ephesians you're going to see two primary themes that will come to the front. You'll see a theme of unity, but you'll also see a theme of love. Because forced unity is not genuine unity. Unity must be motivated by love. And you'll see that come through uh, throughout the study of this letter.